0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Nicholson, and I'm excited to have Dale Bugin with me today. Dale is Executive Director of Canada's Ecofiscal Commission, a panel of some of Canada's top economists with a mandate to identify policies that make economic and environmental sense. Dale has deep expertise and experience in environmental economics and policy, and in particular, carbon pricing. Prior to working with Ecofiscal, he had consulted with governments and organizations across Canada and internationally. He also worked as a Policy Advisor with the National Roundtable on the Environment and the Economy. Dale holds a Master's Degree in Resource and Environmental Management from Simon Fraser University and Bachelor's Degrees in Mechanical Engineering from the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for being here, Dale. My pleasure. Thank you. So today we are going to talk about carbon pricing. Great. And this is an area that uh, I think a lot of people are quite confused about. Sure. It's certainly... um, has been a hot topic for, for you know, more than a few years now, but it's still somewhat misunderstood. So let's start by talking about what actually is carbon pricing. So
1: carbon pricing is policy that makes it more expensive to produce greenhouse gas emissions or carbon dioxide or methane or other GHGs, greenhouse gas emissions. And in more concrete form, they can take really a few different ways. So you can price carbon by a carbon tax, That is, setting the price on carbon directly, and charging people based on the carbon content of the fossil fuel they use. So BC has had a carbon tax since 2008. So it originally started at $10 per ton, rose to $30 per ton. Wow.
0: It's uh, quite an inflation.
1: Uh, it's, it's relatively gradual. That was over several years and stayed at $30 until this, this most recent election in B.C. The new B.C. government has planned to increase that carbon tax again to begin its gradual increase. And just to put that in context, you can think of $30 per ton of carbon is around three and a half cents uh, per liter of gasoline. So, okay. so it, it gives you a little incentive, but not ridiculous incentives either. It doesn't, doesn't uh, change the economics of owning a car, at least at low
0: carbon costs. Exactly. And have they found that it has made a difference? Have, have businesses really changed their behavior because of this carbon tax? Yeah,
1: great question. So there's good academic research that looks at the BC case, and it, it compares emissions in BC to emissions in other provinces. And it, using some some complex statistical analysis, it tries to figure out what emissions would have been in the absence of that policy, right? That's how you isolate the effects of the policy. And kind of the best analysis says that that carbon tax has reduced emissions in B.C. by about 5 to 15% from what they would have been in the absence of the policy. And that's at a pretty low price. So imagine what it would be at higher prices.
0: Exactly. That is actually quite significant. And how many provinces have carbon tax in place or some sort of
1: So the other way to do it is a cap-and-trade system, and a cap-and-trade system is more complicated and it involves setting a a maximum allowable number of of emissions that can be produced. And the way it works is they, they create all these allowances or permits, and they distribute these permits to emitters in different ways. And the number of permits is the number of emissions that are allowed in the system that defines the cap. If you as a firm that's covered by this policy want to produce a unit of greenhouse gas emissions or you want to burn fuel or you want to run a process that produces methane or other gases, you need to have one of these permits in hand for every ton of emissions you're producing. So, What it's, happens if you don't? Then you have broken the law. Then essentially government can find that you're not in compliance and they can penalize you financially and even more so than you would have paid how you just paid for the permits, how you just paid for the price of carbon.
0: So can you, you're allocated a certain number of permits, but then are you able to purchase additional ones?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, we've talked about the cap, but you're invoking the trade, trade right. and the cap and trade. So you can, you can buy these permits from other emitters. If you, as a firm, end up reducing more emissions and you have extra permits or extra allowances, you can sell off those excess permits to other firms. And that means that it's kind of this liquid market of permit trade, and that you can always have this incentive that the market's big enough, you know you can always find a buyer for your permit, and if you're a buyer, you can always find a seller. So that creates the same incentive as the carbon tax does. It gives you this, this kind of certainty that uh, the value of a ton of greenhouse gas emissions is worth this monetary amount, and therefore it it gives you incentives to reduce your emissions and avoid paying that price. That means you need one less permit. You don't need to buy a permit, or you can sell an extra permit to somebody else and take it as a profit.
0: So the market actually sets what the price is of those. Yeah,
1: exactly right. So it's the mirror image of BC's carbon tax, which in BC, you set the price, and you don't quite know what you're going to get in terms of emissions reductions. In Ontario and Quebec, where they have these cap-and-trade systems, it's the opposite. You set the quantity by defining the number of permits, but you don't know where the price is going to come out. It depends on how many permits you've given out and expectations of how that cap's going to change over time.
0: And how do you measure your emissions? Is there, is there um, you know, being, being a CPA, we mm-hmm. think about auditors and auditing, which can be used for all kinds of different sorts of financial transactions, but how do you actually audit emissions?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a really good question. and It's kind of a tricky question, so let me take a step back and bear with Great. me as I circle around to an answer to your
0: question. Oh, excellent. No, and I think you will find that a lot of our listeners will have the same lack of understanding no, that I do, it's, it's so no problem. It, this will be very useful.
1: So let me go back to the real-world example. Let me start with BC. The BC tax is actually really easy to administer because it's only applied to fuels. Fossil fuels that when you burn those fossil fuels, it produces greenhouse gas emissions, it produces carbon. And how many tons of carbon dioxide that are produced from using that fuel is pure chemistry, it's, it's just fixed. If you're burning gasoline, you get a certain number of tons of greenhouse gas emissions. If you're burning coal, you get a certain number of of tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Right. So that's really easy to measure because you can measure how much fuel you're using and of what fuel you're using.
0: So you actually look at what you've consumed in your processes, and then you can apply the tax.
1: And it's even easier than that because the tax is applied to the fuel distributors. It's applied
0: upstream. Before you buy it. That's right.
1: So if you're selling fuel or importing fuel in BC, then you are paying that carbon tax to the government. You then pass on your costs of course. to the buyers of your fuels. Who so then pass it on to their customers. Absolutely. And, and that's exactly the point. That's the idea. That gives this, this incentive all the way down the supply chain to use less fossil fuels or to shift to less emissions-intensive fuels or to find other interesting ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in whatever way it makes sense for you wherever you are in that supply chain. Okay, so that, that's the simple one, that's the BC carbon yeah. tax again. Now, the cap-and-trade systems in Ontario and Quebec are slightly more complicated.
0: And Are they the only provinces that have uh, cap-and-trade?
1: So, Alberta has kind of an interesting hybrid one that's a conversation all of its own, That it, that is even more complicated than the others. Uh, but it looks more like a carbon tax than a cap-and-trade, even though it has elements of, of trading to it. Uh, that's all we have for now, but the rest of the provinces, We'll all have carbon pricing of some kind by 2018. Wow, that's soon. That's right, and that is the deal that they struck with the federal government under the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change, which requires this, this increasing carbon price of either form. By the way, in every province, so the provinces still have flexibility to do carbon pricing the way they want to and design the details a little bit according to their own priorities and preferences. But the bottom line is there's going to be carbon pricing in every province. Quite soon.
0: And the result of that will be a change in behavior.
1: That's the idea. That's the idea that's what economics says. Economics says that if you make something more costly, then others will use less of it. it they will find interesting and low-cost ways to do other things, to substitute away from that that fuel use. That makes sense. Uh, we lost the thread of the coverage question with the cap and trade. Do you want me to go back to that? Yeah. The question is who is regulated? Who has compliance obligations? So it's still the fuel distributors, just like the 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 carbon tax guys in BC. So if you're selling or importing fuel then you need to have permits in hand that are equivalent to the carbon content of the fuel you're selling. That's not the only place there's compliance. If you're a big emitter that produces more than 25,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions per year, then you're directly covered. You have to be playing in the market directly, not just through the supply chain.
0: So do you think that carbon pricing unfairly discriminates against Canadian companies?
1: So this is a really important question. And you can think of this from the economic lens of this kind of competitiveness that that you're applying extra cost to Canadian firms that don't apply to their competitors in other countries.
0: So what, what other countries have these types of uh, plans in yeah, place? Yeah, so carbon pricing is, is
1: growing and you're seeing more and more carbon pricing uh, policies all over the world and more every year and there's a great World Bank map that every year they update it and you see more countries have been wow. filled in on the map.
0: Of course we see that the U.S. has taken a big step backwards. So that this is the
1: big question. We have a pretty integrated economy. Canada-US. So this is the kind of nub of this competitiveness question. If we are pricing emissions in Canada, does that simply mean that investment and production and even emissions are going to just cross the border? They're going to seek out the jurisdiction with weaker policy? That's not a good thing if so, right? Because it means we've got some lost economic activity, we've got things happening elsewhere rather than here, you're making it less competitive for firms to invest here. But you're not reducing emissions from a global sense either. The emissions are just moving somewhere else. So serious question and a fair question, but two big buts here. Number one, the firms and sectors that are most vulnerable to this competitiveness pressure is not everyone. We have some good analysis from the Eco-Fiscal Commission that says about 5% of the economy is vulnerable to these kinds of pressures. And to do so, they need to be both emissions intensive, so they're producing lots of greenhouse gas emissions per unit of output, but they're also trade-exposed. That means they're trading in international markets so they can't pass on their costs. and Instead, they just have to shut things down or get less investment than they would have in the absence of the policy. So for those 5% of the Canadian economy, yes, real concern, important concern. For the other 95 not so much. They're going to respond kind of as they would, just as if the U.S. was pricing carbon in the same way.
0: Right, so who are those 5%? I'm assuming it's uh, the...
1: Yeah, the, the classics are like cement manufacturing or iron and steel manufacturing, uh, pulp and paper in some cases. Right. Kind of these, they tend to be kind of heavy industry that uses lots of emissions, and they sell global commodities, so commodities a, that they can't change the price.
0: What about the um, the oil sands? I mean, is oil that sands so you're going too. to have those
1: Absolutely. companies? Absolutely. Yeah. So five percent of the economy on a national scale around 20% in Alberta and Saskatchewan, precisely because uh, oil is also a global economy. you, You can't change the price of oil in Alberta through your policy, so they are forced to play in that global market. So the bottom line is that for the subset of the economy, this is an issue that you can't ignore. Fortunately, good policy design does not ignore it. You can design your policy to address this concern, to give incentives for reducing emissions without giving incentives for shutting production down or for shifting investment elsewhere. And the key in, in cabin trade systems is, is giving some of the permits away for free. And in particular, you give some of these permits away to those specific sectors that need them most. Right. And you give them away based on how much goods they're producing, the output they're producing. So that gives them an incentive. To increase their production. To increase their production, or to keep maintain their production, at least. But because they still have the carbon price layered on top of that, there's still always this incentive. You can always save the carbon price. You can avoid the carbon price. By reducing your emissions. Now you have incentives to reduce your emissions by improving your performance, by reducing the number of emissions you produce per unit of output rather than shutting production down.
0: And are there I'm quite sure that there must be, but there's a lot of ways that these companies can reduce their emissions in their in their production process, or is it just some of them are just it is what it is.
1: Yeah, then this this is the fun debate that the governments have with industry as they decide how many free permits they should get. Because in that negotiation, every firm will claim that it is is what it is and there are no options. If there's anything we should learn from from carbon pricing and from markets, that sometimes there are incentives to do things that they don't even know yet. I mean, it's not just emissions reductions today. It's also emissions reductions over the next 5 or 10 or 20 years. So if the carbon price is giving them incentive to invest in new innovations and new technologies, they're going to allow them to avoid carbon liabilities in the future. That's part of what's supposed to happen. That's part right. of how the system works.
0: Right. So by putting these in place now, it really does push people to look for better ways to do things. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So to close the loop on the, the competitiveness issue, you can do the same thing in, in price-based system. And that's the essence of Alberta's system. We haven't talked about Alberta's kind of funny hybrid system yet. Essentially, what it does is it has a carbon tax on fuels, just as the cap and trade systems do. And it has this system called output-based allocations for everybody else for these large emitters just as the big cap and trade systems have compliance. The difference here is that there's an unlimited number of additional permits essentially available from government. So it's not just that there's a cap defined by the number of permits in the system, it's that if you're a a regulated entity, a big emitter in Alberta, so you're a big oil sands facility Mm -hmm. or a big manufacturing facility in, in petroleum products or whatever you are, but you have a large number of emitters and you're above that big emitter threshold, you can reduce emissions. You can buy offsets, or you can contribute to this technology fund. You can essentially pay government a fixed dollar per ton for any emissions you have that you are above the sector level benchmark. So if you're one of the top performers in your sector, maybe you have no compliance obligation, maybe you're fine. But if you're a low quartile performer in terms of your emissions, you might have a fairly significant compliance obligation. Then you have to either find more permits from other, other traders in the system, kind of like cap and trade, But the difference is you could also just chip in money to government directly. And because they've set that price directly, that makes it look more like a carbon tax than a cap and trade system, because you know what the price is. There is no uncertainty in that system. You know what the price is.
0: And why do they have this complicated hybrid system?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you can blame another economist. Andrew Leach is an economist at the University of Alberta, and he chaired a panel that, that underwent this process over about a year. Uh, in the early days of the NDP government in Alberta, and his mandate was to come up with a carbon pricing system that worked for Alberta. And he is absolutely aware that this competitiveness leakage issue in Alberta is significant, that 20% of the economy is not small, and that he had to design a system that accommodated that that issue, and this system does, but it also gives certainty. Unlike a cap-and-trade system, we know exactly what the price of carbon is going to be in Alberta over the next few years because it's been defined by this, this price you can contribute to government. You can, you can just pay this price at a fixed rate. So it means that we don't know for sure how many emissions will be reduced in the system, but we do know the price. Back to that fundamental trade-off between uncertainty in price versus uncertainty in quantity of emissions.
0: Wow, it is very complicated. It's fun, fun. <laughs> and fun. And what is the impact on greenhouse gas emissions globally. I mean, does Canada really make a difference? Can we make a difference? Does it matter?
1: Yeah, so this is what economists like to call a collective action problem. And it means that we are all contributing to the problem. And as a result, none of us have incentive to act alone. We all have right. incentive to free ride on the others. Canada could hope that everyone else in the world reduces their emissions to avoid the really, really costly impacts of... Of climate change.
0: Well, I think we're seeing it now with the intensity of yeah, the storms that, that have just happened. That's I right. So
1: so simply hope, just simply ignoring the problem isn't really an option. We, no. And it's it's at least a very costly option. The costs of climate change are going to be increasingly significant, and they're going to matter. There's a reason why governments are mobilizing around the world to start to try and avoid some of those costs. That being said, free riding on others isn't a great option either. It, Canada has this, has a role as a global citizen and if we are contributing to these problems we should be contributing to the solutions as Absolutely. well.
0: Absolutely. And is is this carbon pricing fair to All citizens of Canada Mm -hmm. you know we look at big business and thinking perhaps that they can bear the cost but what about the low-income households
1: yeah great question too so again there's two parts to this question so in BC again good analysis from an economist called Nick Rivers at University of Alberta uh, University of Ottawa excuse me who found that unlike what you might expect the BC carbon tax wasn't regressive I mean it didn't impose higher relative costs on low-income households relative to to high-income households that may or may not hold for other systems. I mean, there is kind of this this intuitive logic that households, that low-income households, a bigger share of their budget is going to things like heating or mobility, Mm -hmm, and they don't have those options. So fortunately, there's also a design fix for this problem. Governments can design their carbon pricing policies to make sure that their systems aren't regressive, that they aren't penalizing low-income households Uh, more relative to high income households. How do they do that? The trick is things you do with the revenue. Again, remember that there's two parts to the system. There's the price that you're charging based on these emissions. That also gives revenue to governments to do all kinds of different things. They can cut taxes, they can spend on programs, they can invest in emissions reductions. But the one thing they can do for low income households is they can give them a check in the mail, essentially. They give them a rebate, just like they get for-
0: Child tax benefits. Or HST,
1: sales taxes, those kind of things. Uh, Don't dilute the incentive. They can still save even more by reducing their emissions even further but it makes sure that they aren't too much affected, that they aren't put under by the carbon pricing policy.
0: Well, that's good to know. So the session that you were uh, on, on the panel with earlier today, you were talking about opt-in. What does that mean? I mean, does this mean that this is a choice, that people can choose to participate or not?
1: Great question. So remember, we talked about in, in Ontario and Quebec, the two kind of compliance groups. One, the fossil fuel distributors. Two, the big emitters. If you are a small guy, you're just paying indirectly. You're paying the cost passed on from your fuel distributor that's selling you natural gas. However, if you're above 10,000 tons per year, you're below the threshold, so in theory you are only paying the fuel distributor, you can choose to join the other group. You can choose to include your own full set of emissions and become a trader in the cap and trade system. Okay, You can play directly in the market. That means covering your process emissions, and it means a little more rigorous accounting of your emissions, but it means you might be eligible for some free permits, and it means that you might be eligible to sell permits and maybe profit off this cap and trade market.
0: Wow, so there is definitely a, a plus side yeah, to this. Yeah, for sure.
1: for sure. And we're seeing lots of firms
0: opting in. So what are some opportunities for companies to benefit from these cap-and-trade or carbon pricing regimes? So the
1: kind of fundamental advantage of carbon pricing is it gives emitters choices. So let me, let me compare this to another policy. Governments didn't have to choose to achieve their GHG targets through carbon pricing, they could have fused, say, regulatory regimes. They could have required certain levels of emissions reductions from individual firms or from individuals even. They could have, have required certain technologies to be used. They could have said every cement facility must upgrade their, their boilers to X percent efficiency.
0: Right, or scrubbers on coal it, plants. Et cetera, I mean, et cetera. Yeah. There's, there's
1: an endless number of possibilities. Now, the advantage of carbon pricing relative to those other policies is that it doesn't assume what the lowest cost option is. It doesn't assume that it knows better than industry does how it can reduce GHG emissions. It's touched the price and then lets industry figure out its own choices. And therein lies the opportunity. If industry is particularly clever and they can find new low-cost ways to reduce their emissions even more than maybe they might have expected prior to doing this, then there's opportunity to, yes, avoid carbon costs from the policy, but maybe even to receive benefits. If you're selling, selling extra permits off on this market, that's a new revenue stream potentially. Uh, it also creates opportunities in the longer term. So it's not just the price today that matters. It's the price in the future, in 10 or 20 or 30 years. And that's setting this expectation for demand around things that reduce GHG emissions. So if you're a new innovative tech firm, then you can have a pretty good sense a robust carbon pricing jurisdiction, that if you have a technology that reduces more emissions at lower cost, there's a market for your product.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think, too, we look at demographics, and the younger generation of employees and consumers are looking for cleaner options. Yeah, absolutely. There's
1: there's these non-financial benefits as well, in terms of brand protection, in terms of contributing to these problems in terms of being ahead of this issue rather than being dragged, kicking, and screaming at highest cost.
0: So, Dale, are there any industries that are real leaders in looking for, for technologies and ways to reduce emissions?
1: I think the answer is that there are opportunities across the entire economy. There isn't any one sector that is the low-carbon sector. I mean, even the oil and gas sectors that are producing fossil fuels that produce GHG emissions are increasingly finding ways to produce those fossil fuels, to to find new energy sources in ways that produce fewer emissions while doing That's so. That's great. So you have to think of the winners as not just being clean tech. You have to think of winners as being everyone in the economy contributing to normal activities, albeit at a little fewer emissions than the normal way of doing things.
0: Yeah, it's always such a trade-off because clean tech is great, but it's not often as efficient as some of the, the uh, fossil fuel-based uh, energy producers. Yeah,
1: don't get me wrong, clean tech is fantastic, and, and we are going to need even more innovation and more clean tech to achieve the emissions reductions that we're going to need carbon pricing creates that innovation incentive. It, it sets that expectation that things that reduce emissions are valuable things and are worthy of investing some R&D, even if the return on those investments is
0: uncertain. And what do you think are some of the new up-and-coming technologies? Huh. So I will resist that trap.
1: And, <laughs> and, and here's why. Because the, the big advantage of carbon pricing is that we don't need to know. We don't even need to pretend to know exactly what emissions reductions are going to come from exactly what technologies are going to drive it we don't know whether it's going to be EVs or hydrogen vehicles or whether it's going to be hybrid vehicles or whether it's going to be all public transit it's in reality it'll be some combination of those things but the point is we don't have to choose policymakers don't have to choose policymakers don't need to presuppose what the right answer is they can set the price and let the market figure it out
0: Wow, so it's like an economist's
1: dream. It is like an economist's dream, yes.
0: <laughs> and where do you see this whole carbon market and carbon pricing going over the next three to five years in Canada?
1: Yeah, so it'll be a really interesting thing to start unfolding over time. So we talked about the pan-Canadian framework, right, that, that set these required carbon prices up to 2022, or the required declining caps in the cap-and-trade systems on the same time frame. So there's two kind of big questions that are, that are lurking there. I, I, even though it's been great progress and it's so good to see movement on this file I, I, in jurisdictions across Canada, there's still some kind of uncertainties out there. Number one is what happens after 2022? Yeah. Does that price keep going up? It probably has to keep going up if we want the emissions reductions. To, 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 to keep going. Yeah. yeah. You
0: want emissions to keep decreasing.
1: Yeah. And to get to the, the, the levels that we really need to get if we believe the science or we even believe our own targets. We've set these targets as a, as a country and as provinces. If we want to achieve those targets, we're going to have to go higher than $50 per tonne, almost certainly. Wow. So we don't know for sure. And, and the fact that this ends in 2022 or, or it doesn't, doesn't extend beyond 2022, we don't have that certainty that would really be great to establish the, the kind of trajectory into the future. Number two issue is how we resolve this kind of patchwork problem of the different systems in different provinces. And that patchwork is entirely practical. There's a reason why we have a patchwork. We had existing provinces that had already taken leadership, had already had systems that worked really well, and the PCF, the Panconian Framework, accommodates those existing systems in kind of a, a flexible, useful, practical way. That being said, I do wonder whether in the long run we're going to need even more coordination. We're going to even need, need even more consistency and harmonization across the provinces.